Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning has gone completely virtual. We've taken both our Level 1 and Level 2 courses and loaded them onto an online platform so that you can digest the power of this amazing operating system from the comfort of your home. We combine this recorded video experience with live Zoom labs to bring all the principles and practices of reconditioning to life through applied case study. In turn, you walk away with how to best use this language of common practice to bring the worlds of therapy and performance together in one powerful approach that creates lasting change in your client's performance. This fall, ReconditioningHQ.com is launching a complete experience package that brings all of the video teachings together with a powerful mentorship program and a weekly community touchpoint so you can grow as the reconditioning revolution grows. We are truly excited about the possibilities. We believe that success in any venture begins with the right mindset. We know that the statistics for burnout in human performance are significant and that many of our colleagues face questions every day about personal fulfillment and living their best life. This is why we've started a landmark program for human performance professionals called Empower You. This program is all about crafting your best life, living purposefully and enjoying the fruits of your impassioned labor. We start our next quarter in September and we'd love to have you along for the ride. For more information about reconditioning courses or our amazing Empower You program, head over to ReconditioningHQ.com and use the coupon code LYM50 for $50 Canadian off the program of your choice. Understatement alert, for sports performance coaches and proactive healthcare professionals, the last six months have been very challenging. We are now seeing the permanent changes in our profession, how our services are delivered, are affected, and we must adapt. Providing safe and effective health and fitness coaching has never been more needed, yet never been more uncertain. Matrix Fitness Canada wants to help you in your journey. Matrix Fitness is a premier brand of fitness equipment designed for organizations, professionals, and exercisers alike. If you are refreshing your facility, they can help. If you are in need of setting up clients with their home gym space, they can help. The Matrix Fitness Canada Ambassador Program is designed to help you expand the reach of your services. This program supports your expertise in supporting home gym design so your clients can have what they need to continue to subscribe to your services. The best part? You can insert yourself into the economic equation as a Matrix Fitness Canada Ambassador. For more information on requirements to qualify and the details around their services, please connect with Nikki.Turner at jhtcanada.com. Welcome to our newest Leave Your Mark sponsor, Rep Performance. Rep Performance is a web application founded by NHLers Nick Foligno and his strength and conditioning coach, Callan McGibbon. Understanding the importance of the developmental stages and their impact on long-term athlete development, they launched an online performance for coaches, trainers, or teachers that would instill a foundation of fitness, share their story, and help them ensure no athlete slips through the cracks and they are equipped to succeed in sport and life. Visit them at repperformanceapp.com. 
Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston, and today I have the honor of speaking with Dinah Hampson. Dinah is a physiotherapist and owner of Pivot Sport Medicine and Orthopedics in Toronto, which embodies all the positive aspects of healthcare for people seeking injury recovery, improved performance, and optimal health. Dinah has worked professionally with multiple sports teams and events. She's been a member of the Canadian medical team for 13 major multi-sport games, including Canada Games, World University Games, Pan Am Games, Paralympic Games, Youth Olympic Games and the Summer Olympic Games. She currently holds a status faculty position at the University of Toronto Faculty of Medicine and is an examiner for Sports Physiotherapy Canada. She has a massive background in ballet and is a huge advocate for physical activity and health. Above all her accomplishments, she is an active mom of two amazing daughters. I'm happy to have her on the show today. Welcome, Dinah. Thank you so much, Scott. It's lovely to be here. Well, you were very playful in emails to me and taking shots at Sam Gibbs at the same time, which I think you should probably do at the start here so he can hear you. But uh, he recommended you, so uh, I respect him greatly. So I thought we would uh, have a nice chat. Sounds like you've done lots of things in your life. Nice to meet you finally. Yeah, you as well. I met Sam, um, I guess officially, we spent a lot of time together at the Toronto Pan Am Games. Uh, and he um, he's such a, as you know, sort of tall, stoic character. Um, and I'm a very small, not stoic character. So it was easy to take pot shots because I'm about his knee level. <laughs> a little person and a big person. <laughs> Well, tell me, you uh, your parents um, hailed from, or one of your parents, I forget when I was reading, from the UK, and so they came over and, and brought you over here and, and uh, settled in Newfoundland, uh, and that's where you grew up. So tell me about growing up in Newfoundland, uh, as a little girl. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting when people sort of say, where are you from? I'm, I'm not sure how to answer that question. My dad was from the UK and came over to Montreal uh, on a program that put decommissioned war officers into academic programs. He met my mom there and they moved to the States to do his doctorate studies. So that's where I was born. I was actually born in New York. And then um, as a, a working professional in agriculture, my dad chose Agriculture Canada, and there was a position with a working lab in Newfoundland. So they piled everybody into the car and <laughs> drove from New York to Newfoundland. And I mean, Newfoundland is literally a rock in the middle of the ocean uh, and as a child I mean I didn't really understand that I knew that we were sort of isolated and, and we were different than other people like we spoke differently we spent our summer vacations traveling to the UK or to get back to visit family and my friends were pretty much kids of other parents who had transplanted themselves to the rock in the middle of the ocean for whatever reason. So it's the most wonderful place to be if you've never been there. I credit my um, empathy skills from growing up in Newfoundland. I think that they've designed a culture that's been, you know, you never want to treat somebody badly because if the power goes out for 10 days or suddenly you have snow and you can't leave your home for two weeks or whatever it is, you're going to need somebody's help. 
And so it really is a culture that's designed where you get to know everyone. Your neighbors are not friendless faces. They're people that you need to count on. And you genuinely make friends. Mm -hmm. So it's not, you know, come over to my house anytime, but you don't really mean it. You really do mean come over to my house anytime. I will feed you. I will clothe you. I will take care of you. And, and so I think I've really kept that through my life. Mm. Um, even though we, we weren't from Newfoundland and it's kind of, we'll never be true Newfoundlanders because we didn't grow up generation after generation. Um, so it was, it was weird. And I, I sort of think now as an adult, my parents, you know, what were they thinking? Um, and also, it must have been tremendously difficult to have two toddlers and be in the middle of a new culture without friends and family. So I really respect what they did now that I can reflect back as an adult. It's an interesting uh, relational prophecy that you were born in New York and then uh, you go to Newfoundland and that ends up being the 9-11 landing pad for all kinds of uh, airplanes. And I forget the name of the play. My, my Come wife, from away. Yes. Have you, have you gone to that play? Absolutely. It's amazing. <laughs> it, is, it is wonderful. It's really a wonderful play. And I mean, I grew up dancing in a musical theater. So when Come From Away came out, uh, it was actually created in Ontario at Sheridan College. And they put it on as a pre-Broadway show in Toronto. So every single Newfoundlander person associated with Newfoundland in the city of Toronto got tickets. So I saw it when it first came out. And it is delightful. Come from away is what I was. So if you're not born in Newfoundland, you are a come from away. <laughs> and the sentiment of that play and the embracing of all of the people who landed there in 9-11 is true to form. And that is that is how they are as a culture. Yeah, I just I didn't go to the play, but my wife told me about the, uh, the line, we're going to shoppers. So we go back to shoppers. <laughs> <laughs> a beautiful uh, world out there for sure. I've been there a couple of times, but um, so how do you, how do you, well, when do you leave there and how do you become uh, caught by the itch of ballet? Mm. So the itch of ballet was from birth. My aunt who, my dad's sister who lived in England her whole life, she taught at the Royal. And so when I was born, she started sending me books on ballet and tutus. And so I was basically raised in a tutu uh, by choice. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I loved it. And, you know, when the ballet would come to, to, St. John's, I would go and I would see the performances. I would beg to see them in the big theater. And then I begged for classes. So I started classes when I was six and I was traveling to England as a five-year-old. So when I would go to England, I would visit my aunt and she would take me to the school studios and I would get to participate in classes. So I really had this kind of backstage pass from the get-go into the world of dance and I, I absolutely loved it it's um it's like flying you know it, you you dance and the music takes you over and the steps take you over and it's it's this expression that is totally different than verbal expression it's it's movement and it's telling a story simply by the way that you move mm. 
so I thought it was fascinating and, and I really did love it. Um, but when I was about 16 years old, that's when dancers really start to have to decide about, you know, is this my career or do I look at something else? And I, I knew that my physical facility, even though I'm pretty tiny, wasn't perfectly ideal for classical ballet. And mm -hmm. that was where my passion was. And so I had an opportunity to continue dancing in a high-performance professional level as a contemporary dancer uh, and even move back to New York. But it's what I want. It, it wasn't what I wanted to do. It wasn't my passion. Mm. So instead, I I said, okay, well, that's not my passion. So I'm not going to do it. And I I did the nasty teenager thing where you just you know dump it all together, and say, well, I'm done with that. Uh, and I I looked for new roots. So yeah. I I know teenagers can be short sighted, perhaps, um, but. It, you know, the, the positives of that is that I did find exploration in university and education, and I wouldn't have been able to do that if I had um, taken up professional dance as a career. And is there, is there a, I sense there's a slight regret there in some way, shape, or form. Uh, you know, it's... Uh, Maybe, maybe yes, maybe not. I, I've i seen so many of my friends go down the professional dance route that I, this was absolutely the correct decision. Mm. And yet, you know, when you look back in time and the, those feelings of complete and total joy in something that I no longer do, then, yeah, you know, there's a, there's a tiny bit of, ugh. That was lovely. And maybe not appreciating it fully at the moment mm -hmm. in time. I remember talking to uh, Tessa Virtue about her pivot between uh, ice dancing and, and ballet. And she'd gone away to the school and was at 14 years old, was kind of living on her own. And it sounded fascinating to me, the challenge of that. And it kind of asks you, I guess it's a, a, an art that asks you to grow up really quickly in some way, shape, or form. Is that, is that true? Uh, and if so, was that part of the challenge of uh, investing yourself in it or not really? Um, I, I think so in that all of the artistic athlete professions uh, or activities, sports, they do request you to grow up quite quickly because – uh, the ability to do them past a certain age is just so much more challenging. And so I understand where Tessa is coming from. And there, there is a lot of overlap between dance and figure skating, which is kind of interesting from a physio perspective. So uh, for me, no, I don't think that was part of the challenge. I, I think I would have been very, very happy to run away from the rock in the middle of the ocean um, because I didn't have those deep roots there. Mm. And my family, I mean, I, I think it was a tough decision for them. I think my parents struggled and ultimately it, they didn't stay together. And, you know, as a teenager, when your parents have decided to not stick together and you don't have a lot of roots in a place, it was perhaps more enticing for me to want to run away as fast as humanly possible. <laughs> and university actually provided a really great avenue for that to happen so my applications to universities were all at least three provinces away 
<laughs> so what, what strikes you uh, or strikes an interest for you in physiotherapy and how do you discover that? Ooh, so that was really cool because I, I was interested in sciences and when I went, okay, how am I going to run away and find, you know, something, something else? I looked at science programs and there was this profession physiotherapy and it was how people moved. And for me, I was like, what? There's a, like, I can work looking at how people move. I've spent my, my life growing up looking at how I move, how other people move. In terms of choreography, you're always looking at how people move. And the minutia of, you know, how your fingers are placed, how your toes are positioned, how everybody's lined up on a stage. And I think dancers get this innate sense of what in the physio world we would call proprioception, you know, what your body's doing in space. We get that within ourselves plus everybody around us and where all of the movement is happening. So being able to apply that in a profession where I get to watch people move and go, that doesn't look right, or, you know, let's change this. That to me was very attractive. And it seemed to be a profession where I could travel. I could, you know, teach, I could learn, I could go all these different places with it. But ultimately, it was about movement. Mm, Interesting. I want to unpack that a little bit. Because one, when you're going through um, school of physiotherapy, or I went through athletic therapy. I mean, fundamentally, assessing movement really isn't necessarily the the framework under which it's kind of taught in some sense. Um, it tends to be very, um, you know, look at the joint, look at, you know, f- diagnose the problem, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it's a more sort of call it worldly or wise practitioner who sort of takes that pathway of looking at movement. So did you look at things differently from the get-go because you, because of your study of, of dance and did it allow you to see things that maybe your, your classmates weren't seeing or your peers weren't seeing as you were going through it? I, I would say so. I mean, I know an awful lot of outstanding clinicians, athletic therapists as well, who who see things the way that I do. So I'm sure you have clinical buddies who, you know, have just a different view perspective when they, they look at a patient and what that patient brings to them before them. Uh, I think it was just, it's a skill that I don't even know that I have. And I'm sure, you know, when you sit down with clinicians at a table and, you know, if you're at a patio and you see people walk past you, somebody's going to say, oh, my gosh, look at their posture or, oh, my gosh, look at their gait pattern. It's it's kind of what we do. But maybe I was more in tune to that. And I certainly find working with my colleagues, I can very quickly look at something without knowing anything about that patient and know that there's something that's different about a leg, an arm, a back. Um, So maybe that does help me from a clinical perspective to tease down and look at what the diagnosis is. So where do you fall then in like or love with actually helping people? Because you come at it from this kind of interest in movement, but you still have to 
work with people, so to speak, and, and help them and sort of uh, have that empathy and the compassion and everything else? Where do you discover that in yourself or is it a part of you already? Well, I, I do think the Newfoundland culture helps with that. I, mm. I just grew up with that desire or duty to help others. Uh, with physio, I think it's any of the movement or physical therapy type professions, the ability to help a person live their life to the fullest using their best possible physical functionality is incredibly rewarding. It's seeing somebody make a change that affects them on a day-to-day regular basis. Mm. And I, I've always said it's not necessarily the Olympic athlete, you know, who, who gives you the most reward. Although, I mean, it's very rewarding to help somebody perform better and perform at their top Mm. level, but transferring that information to everybody in the population and letting everyone just live their lives a little bit better and whether that's more comfortable or feeling they can do more in their job or day-to-day life is there's something so lovely and deeply rewarding about that so I think that's where I find that grab and passion well I I sense this um in your earlier description, sort of this rebel in you as as a late teenager. So you you say in what you wrote me, you got married at 18. So obviously that was part of the rebel as well. Um, And how does that, how does that affect or change or modify the way you go through university? I mean, are you, are there challenges associated with uh, having married early and trying to sort of find your way there too? Maybe. I mean, I, I, I say married. We, we met when I was 18. We, we weren't actually married until the respectable low 20s. Um, <laughs> you know, but, but in this day and age, I know people would be like, whoa, uh, that, that's really early. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I think there was certain benefit in terms of, you know, for a kid who didn't really have a lot of family or roots and, you know, was trying to establish my own, uh, finding a partner who had all of that uh, was really lovely. You know, there was a, a stability and wonderful association knowing I, you know, had a place to go for Thanksgiving every year and Christmas and um, was able to celebrate on a, a larger family scale than I ever did with my own family because we were so teeny tiny. Uh, so I think I gained from the experience in terms of having that family type stability uh my university experience was probably different in that I wasn't doing as much of the you know explore the world but maybe I had done so much of exploring the world because I was already traveling to you know England as a toddler and doing cross-country flights you know planes were no stranger to me uh boats trains all of that so I don't know. I think it's just different. Um, mm. I don't think of it as a negative. That's cool. Well, so how, how old are you when you have your first uh, child? 
So I was 28, 29, Hmm. somewhere in there. So I, somehow I had it in my brain um, that, you know, women were supposed to have their children by the time they were 30. And I'm not really sure where that came from. Uh, but I, I don't know. I was like, oh, okay, this is the timeline. And it's funny, you know, whether it's growing up in a small town or something, it's, it's that trajectory of, well, you are a girl and here's the trajectory. You're going to, you know, go to school. You're going to meet somebody. You're going to marry them. You're going to have children with them. And nobody really talks about beyond that point in the trajectory but that's that's where you're told you're supposed to go and you know no one talks about okay well that's to 30 what the heck happens between 30 and 97 Like there's there's no nursery rhyme that goes beyond first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes Dinah with the baby carriage. And that's the end of the nursery rhyme. It's pretty funny when you think about it, right? Absolutely. So given that you're a mom at 28, um, and I guess the second one comes along not so far afterwards, and when do you become an entrepreneur? When do you decide to become an entrepreneur? And how does, like, let's talk about the confluence of that. Because being a mom is a, lot, a big package. Being a physio is a big package. Being a, a partner is a big package. And then you decide you want to be an entrepreneur. So how does that all come together? Yeah. Um, well, this, I think, is, is turned into my latest passion and, and really helping entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs, particularly females, understand that there maybe is something beyond 30 and uh, it, I for me it was a fluke um, I hadn't really found my fit in physio mm-hmm. and I tried working at a, a lot of different locations clinics hospitals and I liked it it was fun but I hadn't really found my niche And when I was home with uh, my first daughter and sort of deciding, well, what do I do? And I think driving people, especially my husband, crazy at the time because, you know, here I was with a kid and not a lot of adult stimulation. And apparently I'm somebody who likes to create and do and move. So uh, a friend of mine had a very tiny clinic in what was at the time a place called Sport Seneca. So Seneca College is a college in the Toronto area, and they had an elite high-performance sports school there for gymnastics and figure skating. And it was a very similar system to what I knew from the National Ballet School, where you go to school, you do your academics, and then you also do your activity within the same uh, bricks and mortar studio. So these kids would come in, they would have morning practice, they would go to school, and then they would have afternoon practice. So a physio that I knew had a very tiny little clinic in there, and she would take care of the kids from Sports Annika program as part of her clinical job. And she had to move. 
So she called me and said, would I be interested in taking over her clinic because she knew that I was at home at the time and not employed? And I sort of thought about it and thought, what the heck do I know about running a business? I mean, zero, absolutely zero. I don't think I knew how to balance a bank book, no, nothing. So she, she sort of said, well, you know, this might be cool. And I talked about it on the home front and I think, you know, it was like, yeah, this would be cool. You know, go, go get a job. And, uh, I jumped in. So I took over this little tiny clinic in Sports Seneca and had fun really for the first time because I was starting to do what I knew in terms of high performance, artistic athletes, and really putting that together with my background and what I was doing professionally. So it was fun. It was exciting. And I got to learn how to run a business. So I reached out and I reached out to an accountant and a lawyer and, you know, sort of drew from contacts and, and a network. And if I didn't know the person that I needed to reach out to, I would call someone and I made an awful lot of mistakes. Right. I learned that, you know, throwing a sign up to advertise your business where nobody reads the sign isn't terribly effective. Um, so I learned by trial and error and under fire and I figured it out. And that's how I became an entrepreneur. Um, and then from there I moved. And so physically it was just different geographically to, to have to go back and forth to work and take care of kids. And as you say, there's a lot of full-time jobs there. So ended up creating pivot 17 years ago now. Uh, I know, uh, in the high park area of Toronto, which is where I live. So, my ability to be a mom and, you know, have that home life in addition to having a work life, it was in part based on the fact that I can walk back and forth to my office in 10 minutes. Mm. For, for a, a younger person who's contemplating that, you know, when you look back and you say, um, this is what I learned and this is what I wouldn't do or do differently if I could do it again, what would you say to somebody who's starting out with that kind of vision? Like there's a young mom who says, I want to, create my own thing? What do, you, what do you say to them if they're standing in front of you? So I would say reach out to resources earlier. I, I think, I mean, one of the things I do now is I will coach and mentor young, younger or younger in their trajectory uh, clinicians who want to do this or think they may want to do this. And uh, I think there's there's more of us out there willing to do that. So I would say before jumping in head first like me and maybe wasting time making bad mistakes, uh, that, you know, taking some time to learn from people who have already gone down the path and whether they've done exactly the same thing or not, learn from their experience and and have one of those conversations over coffee that is informal and a way to get a sense of what's come before. There's the there's the nuts and bolts of business, um, but then there's also the the passion and the character of business. And you know how 
did you discover that in yourself that you were willing to do the dirty work to make it happen and because you were passionately connected to what you were doing. And I guess that's kind of back to my question is, you know, being an entrepreneur myself, I think my mentorship to others is that really understand themselves and what they're about before they dive into this crazy abyss of business, so to speak. So just wanted your thoughts on that and, and how you discover or, or, counsel somebody to discover who they are inside themselves. Our sponsor, Rep Performance, is a web application launched by co-founders Nick Foligno and Callan McGibbon. Their platform is designed for teachers and youth sport coaches with pre-designed testing templates and AI-driven workouts geared to individual needs. They aim to provide every coach the ability to develop fitness for life in the athletes of tomorrow, share their story, and help them ensure no athlete slips through the cracks, and they are equipped to succeed in sport and life. Visit them at repperformanceapp.com today. Our sponsor, Matrix Fitness, produces training tools that focus on improving the training experience for athletes and coaches alike. With equipment that focuses on building speed, power, and explosive performance in most efficient manner, Matrix has partnered with some of the top sporting organizations worldwide. COVID has forced us all to rethink how we are offering our services. With that in mind, Matrix Fitness Canada has created an ambassador program designed to help you expand the reach of your services. This program supports your expertise in supporting home gym design so your clients can have what they need to continue to subscribe to your services. The best part? You can insert yourself into the economic equation as a Matrix Fitness Canada ambassador. For more information on requirements to qualify and the details around their services, please connect with Nikki.Turner at jhtcanada.com. I would agree with you. I I think um, when you start any job, and especially if you start your own business, it, it really is consuming. And if you're doing it for not personal, passionate reasons, um, then you end up working very hard at something that can be not a positive experience and that it really isn't fun um so i've learned that there's this little voice inside and when it says i'm not enjoying this then listening to that little voice is very important so um the, the finding of that passion, you're right, and really making sure that the direction that a, an entrepreneur is going is in the passionate realm of what they truly, truly want to do, because it is hard work. Mm. Um, my, I didn't recognize that I actually was an entrepreneur. I just thought that I was you know, doing something that was an opportunity and knowing that the positions that I'd had working in other clinical facilities had things that I didn't enjoy about them. Mm. So I never really saw it as I'm going to be an entrepreneur or I am an entrepreneur. And I don't think it was probably until about two years ago. So that's, you know, 15 plus three years of running businesses that I actually went, Huh. I am an entrepreneur. <laughs> uh, you know, wow, look at that. How did that happen? Um, and I don't know if it was when, you know, other people 
would meet me and go, gosh, you know, you're not intimidating. I thought you were and I'm like, why, why would you think that? And it's like, well, you've done all these things. And I'm like, yeah. I mean, to me, it was just, that's just what I did. That was mm-hmm. just who I was. Um, so I don't think it's for everybody. I really don't think that being an entrepreneur is something that everybody should do. Mm-hmm. And to be good at it, I do think it has to be fun for you and recognizing that it really is an all consuming entity because your name is on the line. Mm. So when the world has a pandemic and it tells you to close your business, it's up to you to find a way to keep it going. And that can be extremely exhausting, lonely, uh, you know, the expression, it's lonely at the top. I, I don't think that actually means that you're the person with all of the money and the power. I think that means you're the person with the responsibility. Mm. Well, uh, that's a great pivot point, actually. What, wh- how, do you dis- how do you define success for yourself? Or have you, and how has that changed over time for you? That has definitely changed over time for me. Um, you know, if I think back to 18-year-old Dinah, who, you know, success was I got away from the rock. You know, I, I made... <laughs> and that's it's not a slag. It's, a, it's an amazing place, you know. But for me, it was, it was a bit of a lonely place simply because I didn't have a depth of people there. Uh, and I, and I never really felt as though I belonged. Um, so, you know, success at that point was, Ooh, it's an opportunity to belong. You know, I, I've carved a different path. That's my own. And I'm going to start down this road that I'm creating. So, then, you know, success at my mid-20s was I had successfully carried out the nursery rhyme and I had found somebody to marry and have children with. So, you know, I'd, I'd done the trajectory and success at 40s was more, okay, this is pretty cool. You know, I've now professionally hit milestones in all of the education points and the traveling points and the working in the communities and events that I wanted to work at. And, you know, when, when you think of an athlete making qualifying for the Olympic games, this is what that athlete has trained to do and they've achieved this goal. And for support staff or healthcare practitioners, you know, we don't really get the accolades of you are an Olympian, you've achieved your goal. And yet we as clinicians have to meet all of the same criteria within our professions and be invited to attend the event. So in a way, you know, that really is our Olympic accomplishment, Um, but it's not really seen as such. (laughs) So, you know, I think I recognized that as a success until I kind of went, okay, but again, you know, what happens between your 40s and 97? I plan to live to be at least 97. So... (laughs) 
<laughs> it, you know, there's, there's, there's difference. And what do I, what do I look at as success now? I would say being genuinely happy. Hmm. And so, you know, to go back to your, what would I mentor somebody coming up through? I would invite them to explore finding that genuine happiness earlier in the trajectory of their path. So given that, what, what is the soil for the seed of genuine happiness for you uh, when you think of it? Oof. Um, for me, I, I think it's listening to the little voice inside that says, this is not where you want to be. Mm-hmm. And, and whether that's, you know, work, relationship, geography, whatever it is that's giving you the little voice that says something about this isn't making you feel good, really listening to that little voice. And how have you brought that to um, motherhood in terms of with your daughters, like sort of counseling them towards finding their happy place, so to speak? Well, they're my daughters, so they don't listen to me as much as they will listen to anyone else. Um, but that said, I, I think the way that I've gone about that is to try and introduce them to people that will give them that same message that isn't their mom mm. um, and to really show them by example. So not everything in my life has been easy and roses and you know the the script that you get in a podcast or social media is definitely a highlight reel but there's there's been a lot of not easy along the way and uh I think what I've try to do with my daughters, especially because they're daughters and I don't have sons, so I don't have a point of comparison, but I feel that they are women who will grow up in this world as women. And therefore I want them in particular to know that they have the ability and power to truly do whatever it is that they are passionate about doing. Mm-hmm. And that I don't want them to hit barriers and see things like nursery rhymes as barriers or geography as barriers. Um, they have the ability to to do really whatever they want. Hmm. Uh, so that's what I've always tried to encourage in them and then give them access to people that they will listen to maybe a little bit more than me. <laughs> So I saw that you, you've obviously worked at a lot of uh, international performance events and worked with lots of high-performing athletes. What what are a few key takeaways that you've gained, net gained from working with or at these high-performance events that have sort of influenced your the way you look at you know the way you do your work or the way you look at other human beings or just interesting takeaways from having world, worked in that world, so to speak. Gosh, there's so many. Uh, They're very valuable experiences. I think my biggest takeaways would be my Paralympic experience, which was something 
but uh, it's not my forte. Um, but you learn very quickly that when you're working with Paralympic athletes, you're not there to treat their physical difference. You're there to treat their sport issue. So whatever it is that's impeding them from performing at their top ability, that's what you're there to help them with. You're not there. They, they've grown up with whatever physical difference they have. You're not there to work on that. And they have met their challenges much earlier in life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, things like I never take the elevator now unless it's it's got to be above five stories because when you're working with Paralympic athletes, you realize that, you know, as they say, if you have legs, take the stairs, you know, there's a lineup <laughs> of wheelies trying to get on the elevator because that is their only option. Mm. So if you have legs, take the other option, leave the space in the elevator for the people who don't have another option. And I think, you know, when I compare Paralympians and Olympians, uh, Olympians, as you know, have, they often face their challenges after their Olympic experience and Paralympians have often faced their challenges prior to. Mm -hmm. So when they get to the Paralympic games, that is icing on the cake and they don't have uh, as many issues post games. So I thought that was a really interesting takeaway. And then the other thing I would take away would would kind of be in the same vein in terms of the Olympics is that that's not the end. And uh, I think, unfortunately, it is the end for many athletes. And I, I had a very good conversation with somebody um, Eric Miles, who's with the Canadian Olympic Committee and a, a stunning human being. And we were talking about the Olympics and the Olympic experience. And he said, you know, as a healthcare practitioner, we have an opportunity that athletes don't generally have. And that is to ensure that our Olympic experience isn't the end. Mm. And uh, that would be a takeaway that... I think is very uh, useful, you know, for people to to know that you can have goals, but always know that there's something beyond that goal. Mm -hmm. Well, it's similar to your uh, nursery rhyme, what's after 30 uh, effect, so to speak. So you have to come headlong into that uh, reality. How have, um, how did being a mom change you in essence from the woman before um in the way you looked at life hmm. well i think being a mom i mean i just i i wanted the experience i still want the experience i love my kids they're they're amazing they're really neat to see grow up um being a new mom is confusing and painful and I think you just go into survival mode and just do it. So uh, being a mom now, my kids are older, uh, is this is really fascinating, right? Because they don't really tell you in the books that the kids grow up and they leave. They, they sort of tell you, but they, they do. And they become very much their, their own humans. And so 
uh, oof, how, how did it change me? It, it definitely, they are my priority. Mm. And, uh, I, I think for me, they were my priority before I had them because I really wanted so desperately to have that sense of family that I didn't grow up with. Mm. Uh, so I wanted them way before they happened and having them was such a treat and fulfillment of that dream that it it was just a change in priority. Uh, What is beautiful about having older children is that now I can still have the priority that they are my priority, but I can, you know, meld them into, well, I can do all these cool things myself as well. And, and I think that they can appreciate that mom does these really cool things. So with that, uh, and that's where I wanted to come from, that is um, with all the things that you've been doing through your life, how did you stay connected to you and make sure you were healthy and happy and all that stuff um, versus getting lost in, in some of that responsibility. And of course, I'm sure there have been moments where you did get lost, but uh, you know, how, how did you rediscover yourself, so to speak? Yeah, I was going to say, I think I, I actually got lost for at least a decade. And <laughs> I, I know in all seriousness, and yeah. you know, that's, that's a Pandora's box that can be opened another day. Uh, but I, I did lose myself very mm. much so. And uh, I prioritized my kids not badly. It was it was great and it was what I, I wanted to do. But in doing so, I really did lose who I was. Um, mm. And I, you know, I still kept doing the things that I knew I should be doing from a work perspective. But it was... Life was not about me, and I, I did move further and further down the totem pole in terms of the priority list to the point where I became very, very unhappy, and as you can tell, I'm not an unhappy person, so being an unhappy person was not a lovely place to be, and I did pull resources and um, met with some wonderful therapists. There are incredible people who help you talk through things and really help find a path. So I am not ashamed to say that help is out there for people who don't have that that guide and path and sense, sense of self. Um now that I've found my sense of self, oh my gosh, there's no stopping me. I feel like I can conquer the world and I actually am so excited about the next part. And now I plan to live to be probably at least 107 so that I can really enjoy and take advantage of life according to me mm-hmm. instead of life according to everyone else. I don't obviously don't want to get into um, your marriage not working out, so to speak, and why, but I'm interested in what you learned about yourself in it not working out. If you, if you know yeah, I, I think, you know, when things don't pan out, um, they're hard, you know, and as a perfectionist, type A driven, person, uh, when things don't go according to the book that, you know, I've written for myself, Mm. 
Uh, and, and that comes with all the templates of, you know, what your parents wrote for you and your school and your friends. So, but that inner story of what I had written for myself um, changed. Mm-hmm. And change is really difficult for people, especially type A driven ones. And you'll find a lot of them in the rehab world and in the dance world and in the athletic world. So the change in story for me, and I've had a few changes in story along the way, but marriage was definitely a big one. And um, I, I don't know. So let's see. Um It took me a little while to figure out the positives, but I think this is what I wanted to say is that for people who hit a barrier in their story and have to make a change, it doesn't have to be a negative. Mm. And so I have spent, well, the past five years really figuring out what the positives are and there are people that help find those positives. But, you know, my, my daughters are incredibly supportive. My friends are incredibly supportive. And things that seem, you know, you read all the time, keep a journal, look at your gratitude, you know what. And I remember once walking to work and just everything sucked at that moment in time and it was it was awful and I was like okay I'm supposed to find something to be thankful for and I can't think of anything to be thankful for today because everything is terrible and as I thought about it I was like okay there has to be something and I got down to well thank goodness I haven't walked in gum on my way to work and it it made me burst out laughing because I was like if this is what you know I have come to that I have to think of I haven't stepped in gum then but that's okay and the fact that I started laughing made me laugh more because I was laughing at this terrible horrible day and by the time I got to work I was so happy that I had a really great day so I think maybe reframing would be the word. And if I could teach people how to reframe earlier, uh, then I know that there are a lot of hard things that happen to people and having your story change is very challenging. So being able to reframe that and find the positives uh, is really one of my current passions. Mm-hmm. So what I heard through the last uh, close to an hour is kind of the first 50 in some sense were kind of scripted and, and structured and there was sort of a, a to-do list in essence. And when you look at the next 50, what's your mindset towards the next 50? Is it more, you know, take it as it comes and enjoy it? Or how do you go into this, this next 50 some years you want to live? It is. I, the, you know, ability to let go is something that I have learned. And I, I, I think, you know, for COVID uh, and people, you know, who knows how long they'll listen to your podcast for, but certainly living in a pandemic and, you know, gosh, we can't plan anything, right? We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen next week. And, I I have kind of gone through COVID going, okay, 
you know, like bring it on. Uh, and uh, my theory is now, you know, tomorrow is going to happen. And if it doesn't happen, that means we're all dead. So it doesn't matter. So, <laughs> you know, and yes, I think the next however long is definitely going to be a let's enjoy today. And what can I do today that's going to be amazing and fun and passionate and move me forward in some way? What can I contribute to this amazing planet and all of these people that is going to be productive and positive mm. and letting the crappy stuff go? Because the crappy stuff, as it turns out, you know, makes you feel bad, but it's only me that feels bad. Me feeling bad doesn't make anybody else feel bad. Mm. So if I can feel bad as is necessary, but then let it go and find a new positive way to turn or a different way to turn. And, you know, if it's not stepping in gum, then that's, that's okay. Right. That's something. And you just spin from there. That's awesome. So last question, you're, you bump into uh, 18-year-old Dinah who's just gotten off the rock, so to speak. And what, what, and what would you say to her now if you ran into her? Oh, let the plan go. It's, mm. you know, the, the stories are, are what we write ourselves and they're not written by our parents or our grandparents or our teachers or our friends. And there's no right, correct, ideal story. And it's it doesn't have to be predetermined. I would let 18-year-old Dinah just experience every day and not feel like there was a script that had to be played. Mm. Cool. That's beautiful. Thank you. It's been wonderful to meet you and uh, to spend an hour with you learning about your life. And welcome to the next 50. Have some fun with them. Thank you. That was a very fast hour. And uh, gosh, I, I hope it's always weird to talk about yourself, but I do hope that there are other little dinos out there, you know, or young dinos, because I'm pretty little, um, who you know, maybe are looking at some crossroads or maybe looking at a trajectory and maybe can think outside the box a little bit. Well, it's kind of uh, the whole, you know, there are multiple purposes from my perspective for the podcast. One, selfishly, I get to meet the wonderful spirits like yourself and stuff. But uh, the other part of it is just for people to resonate with the story. You know, if there is somebody out there who listens and says, you know, that's what I'm dealing with now or I'm in this crossroads and it's nice to hear somebody else who's, who's experienced it or whatever. That's the whole idea of it. So thanks for sharing your, your wisdom and your experience in your life. Oh, it was my pleasure. I feel like I'm in a, a really wonderful group of people now. Yeah. Well, have a great day. Nice to meet you. You as well, Scott. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome. <laughs>